Welcome to Help from Future Self. What's happening, Archons? Welcome to another episode of Help from Future Self. It's the conversational Keyforge podcast by and for Keyforge friends. My name is Scuzzy Gruen. I am also called Alex, and I am joined, as with every episode of Help from Future Self, by my good friend, my coach, my Keyforge companion in the journey through the game that we all love. It is Boulevard Paper Fight. What's happening, Blake? Hey man, how is it going? Not too badly. I am just enjoying the shoot shoot out of playing lots and lots and lots of AOA lately. Like ever since we got those decks in the mail, uh, you know, I've just been playing pretty much exclusively AOA, not dipping back into my mass mutation, not going to any of my old standbys from the other set. And uh, that's been a lot of fun to revisit that set. Um, most of the decks that I pulled from the box that I opened are kind of like middling to a couple of pretty good ones, but I've been having fun playing those kinds of games with them. Mm, nice, yeah. Uh, I've been enjoying them too. I've, I've noticed a trend for sure, but it's also been good because I'm able to like work through it. I've been getting a lot of like Logos Untamed Brobnar in various combinations, which is very interesting. Uh, a lot of Project ZYX. I think I've only opened like four or five decks now, and I think three of those five have been Project ZYX mm-hmm. decks. I had like only opened maybe one before this. Yeah, I, I I did notice that I'm seeing most of the like there's so much untamed coming out of the box that I opened. Um, Which is pardon me. I find that unfortunate. In AOA, it was not the greatest. There's a lot of like dud cards, um, which kind of plays into our theme today. But, you know, I, there's a lots of things where I was just like, Bumblebird, you know, I, I think you said it ages ago, never has a card with such good art been so terrible in the game yeah. of Keyforge. Just one of those ones where you wonder what they were actually thinking when they put that card in, because I have never had it be useful ever in any scenario. No, yeah, the the alpha aspect didn't work. I, you know, I think they made they realized their mistake though, because they're th- we did see things come out afterwards, which did a similar effect, but more, um, I guess, reserved in a way. Yeah, exactly. I've been, I've been lately put myself on a mission to just play all my decks I own, since all the ones I've been opening, I'm playing, and I was like, well, I want to have every deck I've ever opened and purchased have at least one rep on the Crucy. So I'm kind of on this mission right now of going through my collection, figuring out what I have and have not played. And just trying to at least get one rep in and I'm kind of creating like a winner's column and then things that don't win just go back in the box and I'll probably not look at them again. Mm -hmm. I should get better about trying to do that. I am going to try and play every deck that I opened up out of this AOA box though, just for fun. And one of them is so terrible, like on paper, that I am actually like pretty excited to play it and see if I can eke a win out of it just for the challenge. (laughs) Like, yeah, it's fun to get a win with like a wicked good deck but to get a win with a truly terrible deck, that's an achievement. Yeah, agreed. So kind of plays into what we're going to be talking about today. If you checked in last week, we were talking a little bit about when your deck has flaws uh, and what those flaws might be when it has deficiencies in some areas. And we broke that down into several categories, lack of artifact control, lack of amber control, lack of board control. What we're going to be talking about today is kind of the same topic, but approached from a different angle We're going to be talking about the dud house. What do you do if you have a deck that you're playing, maybe because you just opened it up and it's a sealed event, or it has two really good houses and you really like them, or it has something else about it that makes you want to play it, has a cool combination of cards, some other factor, but it has one house that is lagging well behind the others. What do you do about that? I have a question that I want to start this off with, Blake. Do you feel that since Coda... We have seen more decks with a dud house in them. 
I'd have to say 100% yes. It's uh, it's kind of wild to think about, and I think this might be why Coda is kind of held the the place in people's hearts and in their their minds about when you're buying a Coda deck, you're gonna be better off more often than not. I think this is why. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Um, we were talking a little bit before the start of the show about why that is, and why the reason there was fewer dud houses in Coda. And it's because more so than any other set, Coda was the set where all commons were powerful. Um, to the point where we used to say, in Keyforge, commons are the best cards and rares are, you know, less important. They're usually more specialized. They usually have, like, something cool or special about them. But it's the commons that really make up the the meat and potatoes of your deck and what make your decks awesome. And, uh, you know, it was totally true. Most of the absolute best cards in every house were printed at common in the Coda era. Less so now. And so I think it stands to reason that every set we've seen diminishing returns uh, in terms of strength of cards at common level. We still see plenty of powerful commons, but we're starting to see more and more great cards happen at higher rarity levels. And in addition to that, we're also seeing the the preponderance of decks where you might have two very strong houses or one strong house, one pretty good house, and one actually bad house. So I think the thing we need to start off talking about is what actually makes up a bad house in your estimation, Blake. I have some thoughts around this, but I'd be curious what you think makes a house a bad house in a deck. I think there's a couple of things that could uh, fall into this category. For me, I think the the biggest one is like if you have synergy with what the deck wants to do with uh with each other, like the two houses, then this one is like completely counterintuitive to what the others are trying to do. The other thing I think is sometimes and and I think it has to do with the commons that exist in that one house. So, for example, we saw this very very strongly and this is going to unfortunately be the the whipping the whipping boy of this conversation, I think, is going to be Worlds Collide Brobnar. Yeah. Because you know, you it had weak commons. It. Sorry, go ahead. No, I was saying you can't get around it. No, yeah, you can't. It's it had it had weak commons. There was moments when you opened it, you were disappointed to see Brobnar, which was not the case in the previous two sets. And so that kind of started to demonstrate this. Now, in the interesting thing is in AOA era. You had a similar thing, I think, exist with Untamed and Logos because you knew you are going to have a lacking in Amber Control. So it was a dud in the sense that you couldn't rely on that house to do uh, pull off Amber Control. But usually those houses had other things to make up for it and would, would work in other ways. But there's this, uh, there's this feeling around certain houses and the potential with the commons that when you get this one house that doesn't mesh with the others, it just creates this this feels bad sort of feeling. And, and sometimes it could actually have nothing to do with the commons. You actually end up getting a bunch of rares and uncommons that are like they're positioned that way because you're not supposed to see them often, but they just happen to show up in this one deck you have. So that's also a thing. Like I think the, uh, the way of looking at it too is um, what does it want to do? Like what does your deck want to do? And is this house suddenly now does not have that at all? Like that's, that's, I think a thing that makes things uh, a little bit challenging. Yeah, what are your I thoughts? Mean, I, I guess, um, sort of more broadly, you can think about it in terms of, you know, all right. Um, this deck wants to, uh, you know, there's, there's, there's some very like simple and straightforward ones like, oh, it's a deck that is, is very, you know, board control focused, has tons of board wipes, but then this one house has nothing but creatures in it. Mm-hmm. Or it can be a thing like, um, 
this is a deck that, you know, doesn't want to fight all the time. It's got like, you know, uh, peace treaties and things like that in it. And yet you can't actually, you know, suddenly you've got that Brobnar house where it's all guys who want to fight or things to that effect. You know, something that just goes against the general strategy of the deck, I think, is oftentimes what makes it. And it's not just a matter of, you know, one or two cards. It has to be more than that. Like if we're going to use my peace treaty example, let's say that every other card in the deck is geared towards we're going to fight and we're going to, you know, control the board that way and build up a big board. You know, if it has a peace treaty in it. That's not enough to make Star Alliance a dud house. You know, you just no, discard, you discard it the it piece of cord. Exactly. Oh, sorry, the piece of cord. Thank you. Um, what did I call it? Peace treaty? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I never play that card anyway because I'm, cause I'm a fighter. <laughs> not a lover. Uh, but uh, yeah, I guess it has to be more than one card to really start to feel that dudliness. And what makes the house feel like a dud is when you have to play a turn of it, it just doesn't feel like you're advancing your game plan at all because it lacks synergy with what your deck wants to do and with what your other houses want to do. I think that's what makes a dud house. Yeah, it's when it's when you're calling that house to actually cycle so it's not there anymore. That's mm-hmm. that's the reason why you're calling that house. It's not because it's going to advance your game. It's because it's actually going to hinder your game. And that's how I think you know you have a dead house when you have that mentality. Mm-hmm. Totally. So wh- why don't we sort of slide into the conversation of how you deal with it? Because we want this to be a constructive conversation. You'll know when you have a deck with a dud house. Sometimes you'll know it just by looking at the Archon card. You go, oh man, this would be great if not for the Untamed. This would be great if I had this card instead of this card in this house. Or this would be wonderful if, you know, this Shadows had actually some of the Steel cards instead of every other Shadows card uh, that's been printed since. Um, but I'm sort of curious what your philosophy is around this, because I know you have a lot of thoughts about it sort of at a baseline level. How do you deal with the fact that you might have a house that is a dud? It doesn't fit into your strategy of how you want to play the deck. What's your first sort of thought in dealing with that as a player? Well, first off, you have to understand what the house wants to do, because there are going to be times and moments that exist where whatever that may be you actually can cater to that and it's going to be helpful. And I have a deck, my Ortanu deck that I showed in my first coach's collection video and the Brobnar in it seemed very out of place to me. And it actually took me playing the deck a bunch of times. Like I was committed to like, I mean, you know what? I actually want to spend some time with this deck and see. And I actually found out the Brobnar was very important, but I didn't realize it at the time. And it's because the Brobnar created the ability to use board control because the deck was lacking like board wipes and things like that. And it had really big creatures that also had like before fight and fight abilities that would do even more damage. So um, it made it very potent in that sense. But I had to be kind of aware of that and uh, understand the situation. So the one thing that I, I kind of wanted to say on that point was I suddenly realized that that house actually did have a strength, but it's not what I always wanted to do. So I had to be aware of that. And so you need to to pinpoint, first of all, look at that house on its own and be like, okay, if I have to play this house, what does it want to do? How can I take advantage of this? When the moment comes, because it will, how am I going to actually utilize this in a productive way? Mm-hmm. And the first thing you have to actually look at within that house is, I think, the board cards versus the action cards. So things that once you play, they're going to be on the battlefield in some capacity and they're going to stay there versus your actions. Because you could make the argument that the board cards are almost 
more valuable in a dead house because they're not necessarily going into your discard. So therefore, you're not cycling back into them potentially if your deck can cycle. The other uh, side to that too is most likely if you're playing an action, you're getting Amber Pips. The worst is if you have actions that don't give you any benefit upon playing them in a dead house because then they're just like a card that's going to get cycled back and you're maybe not going to get value out of them in any capacity. So you need to start first identifying if you had to call this house, what does it do well? I think that's the first thing is identifying like what it does have as a strength because it may not be synergizing with the other two houses, but it does do something. And I'm sure if there were other houses uh, in or other um, other houses that went with it that did things similar to that, you'd be like, oh, this would actually be good in this capacity. So identify what that is. I think that's step one. Yeah, that's that's great. Um, one of the things that I wanted to talk about is the fact that one of the things that makes a house kind of a dud is oftentimes creature count. And when you have a high creature count, but they're not quality creatures, they don't have good like play fight or reap effects like they're just or board bodies. staying power. Or board staying power for that matter. So they're just kind of sitting there on the board. Like it's tempting to think, oh, well, if I put them on the board, then at least I might get value out of them as a, as a creature that reaps or something like that or that fights into my opponent's battle line. But that, of course, would require you to play that house again. So unless your hand refills to more of those cards and you can, you know, all right, fine. If I play four more cards next turn, then there's only two left in the rest of my deck. And, you know, I've, I've got it out of the way and it's nothing but quality coming to my other houses. Chances are you won't won't get that value. So although it's oftentimes I think tempting to think, all right, well, I've got, you know, five of these creatures sitting in my hand right now. Do I want to just put them on the board and hope that I could, you know, get some value out of them later? Don't confuse that with the fact that you will necessarily get a fight off or get a uh, reap off, especially too, if it's, you know, as a recognized dud house that you might not call again for three or four turns or something like that. A lot can happen in that time in Key Forge. Yeah, I actually even took that approach in a way uh, with the the deck I was talking about where I would actually mulligan to try and get as much Brobnar as I can to start off the turn. Like if I had like no Brobnar, but I had a good distribution of the other houses, I'd be like, no, actually these cards are going to be better later on the game. I want my Brobnar now. So I even tried to play it early and would do things where I'm like playing Brobnar early on. So I knew my deck was going to be more heavy of the other two houses I wanted. And it didn't work. It actually, I had worse losses playing from that standpoint you kind of have to take things as they come and trying to mitigate it in that way i think is actually kind of unproductive and it also made me realize the value that they had in terms of being some board protection when the times came yeah i i mean i i've experimented with a few different decks one of my absolute favorite worlds collide decks one of my absolute favorite mass mutation decks in fact the mass mutation deck i played more than any other um i oftentimes you know would would try and get as many dis in my hand uh, for the first turn as possible because dis was the weakest house of the three houses. And my thinking was always, oh, well, I want to get those discards, just get rid of them as fast as possible. I don't want them gumming up my my engine later on when I get my logos, like big draw engine going. I don't want to be drawing into dis. I want to get rid of the dis early. And what I discovered was that oftentimes I was like really handicapping my early game by mm-hmm. actively playing bad turns just yeah, to try and true. get rid of this dud house. And what ended up working much better for me was the, all right, if I start off with four discards, sure, let's run with it. Just the same way I would run with any other house that I drew into the four, but I'm not going to actively seek it. And I'm going to do what you did, which is the look for what that house wants to do and see if I can work it into my game plan. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. And 
Um, I'm going to go into a couple points here. So I'm going to rant for a little because they kind of go one into the other. Then I'll, I'll try and get your thoughts in between slightly, but mm-hmm. they they do flow. Um, so with that in mind, you ideally want to get this dead house in chunks rather than getting it two by two, because if you're getting it two by two, it's really going to slow down the flow of the other houses and how you're drawing. Because when you do call that house on the time you need to, it's going to basically not be efficient in what you're playing. And then you have the other side of it is you're holding it for a long time. So it's almost like you're chaining yourself in a way. Mm-hmm. So that's just an RNG thing and there's nothing you can do about it. But be very mindful of your card ratios. So if you know like your discard plus board plus hand, you start adding up a house and noticing one is really dominant and the other one you haven't been drawing a lot of. And if that's your dead house, that means you're going to be getting a handful pretty soon. So just be aware of that. I've, I've become much more... Um, I guess, studious about taking the time to click on my discard, taking the time to look at what I have in hand, what I've played on board, and and adding up those numbers of each house sometimes when making a call, especially when there's not like a, a clear play of what you're doing. It's like you don't need to take someone off check. You don't need to advance. That's like that weird in-between. Like nothing you do is going to put you at check or take someone off a check. You can kind of just take a look at, okay, what's going to actually allow me to draw more into one house. So whatever you have the most of played, someone's always be like, okay, I'm just going to call this house now and play what I've most had played. It's the same concept of when you have a 2-2-2 hand. It's kind of like you're doing the same sort of thing, but you're looking to draw into something else more. You use the same principle. Mm-hmm. Yep, I, I definitely get you on that one. The When is it a good time to play the dud houses? Of course, varies by the game. It varies by the deck. It varies by the situation. But Oftentimes, um, and this might almost sound a little contrary to some of the things we've discussed, you know, if if you can just get all six cards of the dud house in one go, it might be a bad turn. But at the same time, you're also making it so that you're not getting those cards in a future hand and making it more sure that your hand is refilling with better cards from other houses. So oftentimes it is really seeking out that um, and, you know, there's limited things that you can do to manipulate that. But, uh, you know, it's, it is one of the things that you're going to be looking for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's true. And that's actually, that is a great segue to my next point. And that is like, um, it's the end game. Being, of, being aware of how being stuck drawing into the dud house can impact the end game. And you need to be aware of taking an L on a turn, like you said, to allow the cycle. So like, the great thing for me that I learned playing this this deck that had Brobnar was that um, if your opponent passes to you and they have four or five Ember, that means they're not in check, they're not threatening, and you know you can't take them off check with that house. And this applies not just for a dud house. If you have a house that you know is not going to take someone off check and you get to this point, call that house. Because you can call that you know that you, that they can respond afterwards and you're going to be able to cycle into that house that does more of what you want. So you have better odds of drawing into the strength of your deck rather than the the other cards. Now, obviously, RNG is a thing and you could just draw into more of those cards you didn't have, but that's where being aware of your ratios is going to give you that answer as well. So be aware of that when, especially as well, if you're like in the modern Keyforge game right now, there's a lot more onboard type of Ember control where you need to have something on board and utilize it. And if that's the case, that means you need to be aware of the setup as well. So when they're at four or five Ember, you need to be putting those pieces into play so that you can utilize them later or getting those pieces out of your hands. You can get the pieces into play uh, or potential to draw into them to get you what you want. Because uh, I did that with that deck as I had cards actually in hand that could 
really do strong ember control. And my board was actually dinosaur based and it was really strong. But my two pieces of ember control I had would means I'd be potentially playing them. And then I'm also not cycling. So I needed to hold them. And you know what happened was I was like, you know what? I'm actually going to call. I think it was it was Brobner I called because I had a little bit of board presence. And I was like, I'm going to actually hold this Ember control because they're not flexing right now on, on check. So I can just wait. And so I called them, did some things with that. And then it opened up the next turn to actually utilize the dinos because they're big creatures. And barring a board wipe, I was in a good position. But they had strong board presence too. So if they board wiped, that's fine with me as well. So it's just you just have to be very aware of of that moment. Like you can't get carried away sometimes. You have to when you have the dead house, you have to be uh very um picking your battles so to speak. Like you need to say, okay, they're not pressing me right now. If I played this house, the loss of this turn is not going to be detrimental as opposed to if I had went next turn and now I suddenly have a full hand of this. And now I have to call it because I don't have the tools and what's on board is not going to help me. You need to be very aware of when you're calling that to take an L on a turn just to allow yourself for the cycle. Yeah, that actually kind of factors into one of the things that I want to talk about, which is the fact that mass mutation gave us one of the absolute best tools ever to deal with a dud house. Little card we like to call auto encoder. Yeah. In almost all cases where I have a bad house, it is sometimes better if I have auto encoder on the table and four or five dud house cards in my hand to just discard all of them. And maybe that's a crappy turn. Maybe I don't do anything to advance my board state. Maybe I don't get a reap or a fight off. Maybe I don't get to play any actions for Amber or other pips. But the fact that you could then be stocking up on four or five additional cards for your next turn from your good houses is invaluable. Auto encoder can sometimes make a dud house super value because it sets you up for those big super value turns. Yeah, hundred percent agree. That is that is the best card for dealing with dead houses. There's there is no close second. Yeah, and it's one of the few tools I think that we've been provided with, which sort of factors into one of our conversations from very early in Mass Mutation, uh, which was, is Auto Encoder the best card in the set? Um, I, it's over time seems more and more clear that oftentimes it is. Yeah, I think you might be right, actually. And it's common, too, so you see it frequently. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Any last thoughts with regards to a dud house and how to deal with it? Well, the best thing to do is, like anything in Keyforge, just get some reps. Play play it, see it in different ways. Try these different things. Try mulliging for it. Like, Don't just take our word for it. Do some experimentation. We have the benefit of TCO, where you can just jam games very easily. Try these things out. See what happens if you choose to to try and get as much early on. What happens if you you get these situations where the you choose not to call the house and uh, you and you press your advantage, but then you're stuck with the house. Like, see what happens when it happens, because then you're going to actually learn from it. Taking our word for it is not enough. This is something you need to actually take action with, and be. Uh, present when it's happening take notes i'm a very big fan of when i'm testing a deck out for uh, i guess like an academic purpose i want to understand it better i take notes i write the game i write the set i'm playing against and the houses i'm going against and i make little notes after the game of things that were noteworthy like things that were positive things that were negative and then after where you're done your 10 games because that's the the mark i like to do for testing is look and see if there's a pattern you may realize there's a pattern before you even get to the 10th game like there's no question like this keeps happening it causes the loss there's no way around it that's that this deck does not work in a competitive sense because of xyz but i do enjoy playing it because of these other two houses so i just know the capacity in which this deck functions 
one of the points that I really wanted to make as sort of my final point is do not let a bad house or what looks like a bad house deter you from playing a deck. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that you and I have discovered many, many times that sometimes a dud house or something that looks like a dud house has a purpose within a deck. Sometimes it's still a dud, but it doesn't actually stop you from being able to play that deck effectively and winning games with it. Um, Mm -hmm. It's always a matter, I think, of Keyforge, of of leaning into that discovery process. And the worst case scenario, if you open up a deck, look at it and go, that house is great, that house is great, that house stinks. Worst case scenario, you were right. Best mm-hmm. case scenario, you were wrong, and that deck is absolutely like the that house has a total purpose and can f- synergize in ways you didn't even notice with the other houses. Medium scenario, and I think this one is fairly common, is you can play around its badness or you can play to its badness in ways that make it work. Mm-hmm. No, always yeah, always about playing those decks, always about discovering things about decks, even bad decks, even decks that have bad aspects to them. There are lessons to be learned and there are things that can you know, make you a better player. There's lessons you can take back to your absolutely killer decks. That's kind of the reason why I've decided to play every deck I own now because uh, you are learning things. I think when you start off the game, playing every deck you own is is good, but also when you're down the road and you've, and you've got that experience revisiting your decks especially ones from the past is also good because your knowledge and growth within the game has increased. So you're going to approach things differently. Mm -hmm. Very, very true. Can't end an episode of help from future self without the titular segment. We like to call this one help from future self, a lesson for y'all from some of my recent games. It is a lesson that is about mindfulness. And that's a topic that I think we talk about a lot on Keyforge and playing Keyforge mindfully. Um, Thinking about what you're doing, thinking about why you're doing things, not just letting your instincts or your, you know, programmed reactions take over. Well, I always play this card in this situation. Really thinking about that. One bad habit that I noticed in myself recently that I'm trying to break myself of is the I'm losing the game. And so I assume that I'm going to lose and therefore I don't put any thought into my turn. It is a self-fulfilling prophecy. I was playing a game the other day in which my opponent jumped out to an early lead. They got a ton of amber in their first couple of turns and were up a key and on well on their way to their second while I was still languishing at like one or two amber. And I basically just started, you know, just playing cards out because I was like, whatever, I'll just get through this game and start another one. And about halfway through the game, I realized, you know, wait a minute. You know, he he hasn't won the game yet. My opponent has not won the game yet. I'm still in this And I just wasted my last three turns playing on autopilot because I assumed a loss when no loss was guaranteed or forthcoming. And, you know, I still lost that game. But if I had been paying closer attention and if I hadn't assumed I was going to lose, I might have won. And that's something that I've been trying to keep in mind with every game I play now. Yeah, sometimes you get walloped and that's not the best feeling in the world, but that's not an excuse for sloppy play. And if you're only playing a game mindfully in scenarios where you think you can win, you're not really playing the game. So that's something that a lesson that I'm trying to internalize and really carry with me. I want to play well, even when I'm destined to lose. Yeah. I I really like that actually, because Keyforge is also a game of like discovery, like we say, and you may see a combination of cards 
that you haven't seen come before as a result of that. So if you're not paying attention, you're not really taking in those moments of new discovery. And then on top of that, you're going to have the the uniqueness of the cards being playing against you and how what you have interacts with them. So it's always good to be uh, taking things into consideration and not uh, just autopiling, like you said. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we used to talk about this all the time back in the Coda era, um, and it's been kind of eroded, but it is super possible for games to swing hard in Keyforge. We used to see Mm -hmm. it a lot more, I think, in the early days, just because decks were so much more powerful. And so you would suddenly see a thing where somebody's up two keys and then the other person comes back and wins the whole game from nothing. You don't see that as much anymore, but it's still definitely a thing that happens. And, you know... Do you want it to never happen to you because you gave up the moment you were behind? Or do you want to aim for that and hope that, yeah, my opponent's up two keys. What if I can get within striking distance through clever play, through Mm -hmm. really thinking through my turns? Wouldn't that be a better feeling? 100%. You can find us on social media at HFFS Podcast. You can find me on Twitter, on uh, Instagram, and on The Crucible as Scuzzy Gruen. Shout out to all the listeners who reach out to us on there. Blake, what do you got going on streaming on YouTube and everywhere else? Well, I'm... uh Doing my series right now on YouTube, I have three of them going. One is the Coach's Collection, where every week I'm looking at a deck that I love from my collection and uh, going over why I love it, and then it's played on stream that week. I'm doing my Key Thoughts, which is my weekly vlog just about my thoughts and experience with the game. And then, of course, I do my AOA Extravaganza unboxings. Usually two a week are coming, maybe three And then I stream on Tuesday nights at uh, 6 p.m. Pacific, 9 Eastern, playing the decks that I opened, as well as other decks I'm going through. And of course, I'm on my mission right now to play every deck I own. You can find me on the Crucible under Coach Collection. So if you see there with Coach Collection, that means I'm not necessarily playing some heat. I'm just playing everything. And I'm playing it in competitive because I really want to see if that deck is something special. And you can find me on Twitter at Boulevard Paper Fight. That's B-L-V-D Paper Fight. And I'm back on Instagram uh, here and there. You know, you've always been, I think, a person who has been an advocate of always playing competitive. Even if you're playing mm-hmm. like a, a deck that isn't heat and you know it's not heat, playing competitive because you'll see how that deck performs um, probably better than in other modes. And, you know, I always play in competitive, I think, because of that advice. And, you know, I think there's arguments to be made for playing in casual in certain scenarios. But I do ultimately, play casual. if you're playing random, do you? Yeah, I do. Usually when I'm streaming and it's a new deck I've never played before, I already recognize like, oh, it's kind of got some weakness that I know will be a problem. And it's kind of well as well because to keep the flow of games, I'll sometimes play a casual game for that reason. All right, we'll cut out that thing I just said. <laughs> <laughs> or leave it in. Now it's funny. Uh, it is funny. <laughs> I'm leaving it in. <laughs> with all of that said, thank you so much for listening to Help from Future Self. We appreciate it so very much. We'll hope you join us again next week. Until then, you know what we say. What do we say, Blake? Stay fortunate.